You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. series of the core curriculum this is the show on the christian humanist radio network where we read slowly through the books on columbia university's great books list uh if you've listened to the last four episodes you know we've been talking about sappho's poems and this is the last of our episodes on sappho so uh, after this there'll be a break of some amount of time and then we'll be back to talk about homer's odyssey uh, which will take far more than five episodes, I'm afraid. <laughs> Today I am talking about poems about art and beauty with Jay Eldred, whom you've heard on Sectarian Review and the Christian Feminist Podcast and probably some other places. How you doing, Jay? Uh, doing well, trying to keep myself occupied as we enter. I think that the day that we're recording, we're under 57 days of, of isolation now, so that's where we're at. Yeah, and you're isolated in New Bern, North Carolina, is that right? That's right, so... Well, also yeah. also joining us from, uh, I don't know, about 80 feet from me here in Woodstock, Georgia, is my wife, <laughs> Victoria Reynolds Farmer, the founder of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and again, probably on some other shows. How's it going, Victoria? Going pretty well. How have things changed since the last time I saw you? Uh, 90 seconds ago. Not a lot of change since 90 seconds ago, uh, but I'm excited to be uh, talking about Sappho again. I just recorded another episode of this uh, two days ago, so uh, lots of lots of reading Sappho the past couple of days, and it's been really fun. There are a lot worse people to spend a couple days reading, that's for sure. Our topic, as I said, is poems about art and beauty, but the truth is this is the last of our episodes on Sappho, and there is a bit of a grab bag quality. So all of these poems touch on art and or beauty in some way, but really they're just the poems that didn't fit very well into the other categories I set up. So I wanted to talk about them today. So I want to start by talking about one that doesn't really, except in the broadest sense, have to do with the topic, which is Voight 57. Um, and I guess now's the time to say who our, uh, who our translations are. I'm using the Aaron Puchigian translation, which is Penguin Classics. It's called Stung with Love. How about you guys? Um, I'm using Philip Freeman's translation, which he said he based most of his also, uh, excuse me, he based his translations and numbering mostly off of Voight as well. Okay. Uh, I'm also reading the Freeman. Well, would one of you like to read Voight 57? Sure. What country girl bewitches your mind, dressed in her country clothes, not knowing how to pull her ragged dress over her ankles? <laughs> That's uh, an even more idiosyncratic poem in the Freeman translation than in Puchigian's, especially that last part, pull her ragged dress over her ankles. Puchigian has 
witless of the way a hike at him would display her ankles, uh, which which makes it, I, I, I think, I shouldn't say clearer because I don't read Greek, so I don't know what Sappho actually wrote. But to, I understand the Puchigian one better than I understand the Freeman one, I think, which is that um, this this girl is too much of a rube to know how to present herself to men. Is that how you read that poem as well? Yes. No. Well, um, I okay. <laughs> I I I think um, I think that, or at least in my reading. Um, there's an awareness of um, the fact that she's exposing her ankles on purpose. Oh, I see. So you ah. think you think that she is she's kind of innocently sexy. Um, well, Freeman, in talking about the sexuality of of women in his introduction, um, there's pages and pages where he says. Um, something interesting about Sappho's poetry is that she understands that um, women, kind of some of the only social power that they held was the fact that they knew they were objects of desire. And even though there were very strict social rules about virginity and, and marriage, that there was a sense in which um, women kind of held the cards and knew it to a certain degree um, so I, I think probably reading that in the introduction influenced um, my reading of, of that last line in particular. My take on it wasn't so much that she was being critical of the girl herself, but rather she was poking fun at the society and culture of of the um, the island or the pl- I'm not sure where in her life this this was written, but I took it more as a critique of society more than of the girl herself. What's the what's the critique, Jack? Well, it would be it would be more of the fact that you know in some of the the um, background reading that I did, and I really struggled with this section. I'll be honest with you, but what I was finding was that it was more of the fact that she didn't always care for the people that she was around, and so I'm I'm going to slaughter the Greeks. I won't try, but wherever she was living at the time, they had a a rather high view of themselves, as, well, many people are wont to do, but weren't necessarily deserving of it. Hmm. Perhaps as as some country people might might be. And again, I say that with utmost respect because I know how the words might be sounding. Um, I grew up in a very rural area. You know, dairy and corn farms are, are what I grew up around, so I'm not trying to disrespect those kind of people. But there's also that sense of, you know, we're better because we live we live here than other people. You know, people are the same all over. Which is certainly the the speaker of the poem seems to be arguing that, right? That this this kind of hick is coming in and usurping what's rightly the speaker's. Right. See, I read it, and and here, like you, Victoria, I'm I'm influenced by the introduction given by the translator, because Puchigian says the girl is criticized for not knowing how to present herself in an enticing manner. And so I, I definitely read this as this, this girl is again, too much of a rube to really understand what attracts men. And yet the joke is on the speaker because, uh, the, the person she's talking to has been captivated by this farm girl. So the girl doesn't know what she's doing, and she's still kind of dangerous for Sappho. 
um, she's she's still able to lure the the person whom Sappho loves away from her. Is, is the way I read it. Yeah. Um. At the risk of trying to read too much into the poetry, I know that I talked about this on the last episode I was on, but this is my first time reading reading her poetry, and I couldn't help but try to make common or make parallels with something I was familiar with. And this one stuck out to me that taken the right way or the wrong way, depending on how you look at it, it could be the setup for a Hallmark movie. Say, say, say more about that. I like it. I, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. It was just like, oh, this is this seems like the premise of a Hallmark movie that someone who's more cosmopolitan or well traveled gets his gets normally the guy. It's the guy he has his head turned by a country a country girl, someone who isn't you know in his sphere of influence or isn't in the normal circles that he moves, and he is attracted to that particular individual to the consternation of all their friends and acquaintances. This poem is Sweet Home Alabama as narrated by the the man Reese Witherspoon leaves in New York City. Sweet Home Attica. <laughs> oh, man. Are, you, are we ready to move on from that one? I am. Sure. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the next poem, Voight 58, which... I understand is not in the Freeman translation um, for whatever reason, so I'm just going to read the Puchigian. But I love extravagance, and wanting it has handed down the glitter and glamour of the sun as my inheritance. And I know you guys both had the chance to read that poem, even though it wasn't in your translation. Um, this, this to me, is a much more metaphysical poem than most of what Sappho's up to. This is um, something approaching like Platonic philosophy almost. How so? Well, the way I read it is that um, the the physical beauty in extravagance, and I, you know, I picture her with with uh, dazzling jewels and gold and things like that. That physical beauty has somehow given her the, the quote glitter and glamour of the sun. This metaphysical beauty. It's it's uh, when we read Republic, um, our, our listeners will remember that like that's that's Plato's symbol for the good. You know, so so somehow, rather than separating the physical world from this this kind of unseen metaphysical world, Sappho finds crouched in the physical uh, this this metaphysical plenitude. Okay. What do you think? Am I trying to turn Sappho into some sort of proto-Catholic? No, though I read that sort of, I mean, similarly to you, but inverted. I, my my reading was, it's it's the it's the sunlight that's the real extravagance. That that like, she found it in a different place than she was looking for it in, and what she really got is, um, what's difficult to explain and extravagant is how beautiful the sun is. So I guess that's similar, but angled differently. And, but, and again, if you think of, if you think of the extravagance as being jewelry, which maybe that's sexist of me to assume that's what she's talking about, but I think it works with that reading because you wear your, you wear your flashy jewelry outside and the sun reflects off of it and either makes it more beautiful or shows that it's not, um, the really beautiful thing anyway, right? I guess. I don't wear jewelry. Um, 
yeah, sure, that that seems to work. I read it a, a similar way, and then I don't know, maybe a more cynical way, <laughs> where I divided the two the two parts where the first part where she was striving for extravagance was contradictory to how she ended up where she might not have received the accolades or the jewel, as you put it, the jewelry or the finery that she had desired and was left only with, with the natural things. Yeah. You guys are reading it in a much more, um, platonic way, which I I mean, I, who knows? It's not like any of us are scholars of Greek literature. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's wrong, but I, I, one thing I liked about this poem in, in my reading of it was the way it subverted that kind of, um, asceticism um that extravagance is bad to me sappho is such an earthy writer she's so interested in physical things that uh Mm -hmm. i I found that really appealing about the poem so i I guess what i'm saying is i kind of object to you guys taking away that um physical physicality away from the poem and saying that it's really not about these things it's about the the natural world or i'm the one who used metaphysical um, so I won't put that into your mouth, but. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's a fair, a fair statement. That's the way that I took it. So. Part of, part of the problem, of course, is that with the exception of one poem, everything we've got is fragmentary and mm-hmm. nobody has any idea or very little idea what the rest of the poem even looked like. And I think that's especially clear in this one because it starts with this but, right? It starts with, it's drawing an, ex- an explicit comparison, a contrast to what came before it, only we don't have what came before it. That but, I think, is the reason I really like Jay's contrast reading. Uh-huh. And I know what I'm about to say in terms of form doesn't work probably for the original Greeks. So I'm just going to talk about what the English is doing. But so the, but when you're thinking about form often um, signals a, a volta, a turn in a poem. And I think that you can kind of also feel that turn. If you look at what the rhyme is doing, at least in the English, we've got an ABBA rhyme, um, which in, Later English poems that draw on earlier classical traditions um, often play with the kind of dual um, dual subject split that he was talking about as well. So I I think form again with the linguistic caveats um, also speaks to contrast. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up, Victoria, because Puchigian says that we know that this poem is the last two lines of a four line epigram. So I, oh, okay. I, I think you're absolutely right to see that as, you know, th- there's a contrast going on. And I guess it depends on what the <laughs> what the the missing two lines are. Is she comparing herself, as I assume, to a kind of ascetic, platonic, proto-platonic, obviously, because she lives before Plato, uh, proto-platonic philosopher? Or, or is she comparing herself to, well, who would you say she would be comparing herself to, Victoria? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Oh, I, I don't know. Okay. But I, we see a very similar kind of comparison in poem 16. Uh, in my edition, it starts, some say an army of horsemen. Um, I'm just going to 
read a couple lines. Some say an army of horsemen, others a host of infantry, others a fleet of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. But I say it's whatever you love. So that um, other people like this, I like this other thing. I, you know, I think there's there's precedence for that. Yeah. Although if you if you look at that poem, what strikes me that's that's one of her sexiest poems, um, and it and it ends with this really really um, detailed blazon of of uh, of this woman's body. So I I that that's another reason why I would I would suggest that she is praising physical extravagance rather than um, some sort of metaphysical simplicity. I certainly think that she's very into the physical. It's one of the things I love the most about her poetry. I, I think the place I'm disagreeing with you is that I did not immediately associate extra- extravagance with the physical necessarily. Okay. But maybe I should be. Well, and and who knows, because we're all using this one Puchigian translation. Who knows what that word extravagance could be translated, right? Right. I'm sure I, I probably said this in the other episode I'm in, and I'm sure other people have said it in other episodes. Poetry is essentially impossible to translate. Anybody who's ever tra- tried to mm-hmm. translate poetry from one language to another knows you just can't do it because the words are too individually weighted to, to play around like that. And the fact that we only have pieces of these poems makes it even more. So in some ways, what you're dealing with when you read Sappho is you're dealing with Puchigian or Philip Freeman or is it Anne Carson who who does the translations of Sappho? You're dealing with poems they writ, wrote that were kind of suggested by Sappho's Greek poetry. So maybe we should have all read six or seven different versions of each of these poems, especially since they're so short. But who's got the money for that, right? Not many people, that's for sure. Um, you know, you were you were asking who who um, the poem might be written to or about. You know, there it's unnamed, and I was you know this is just off the top of my head. But if we're going to say it's it's a contrast, might and this is pure conjecture, might it be related to Voight fifty five and the unnamed subject of Voight fifty five, where she's critiquing someone. You know, when you're dead and lying there in the ground no one's going to remember you were saying your praises because you didn't value the things that i valued you know if we if we assume a common net a common nemesis hmm. because you gathered no sprays from the roses of the Pyrian muses what do you think victoria um Freeman says that that poem is about a particular festival uh, to uh, Demeter and Persephone. That it's it's about sort of women's religious devotion and uh, and the change of the seasons and etc. Which I think is interesting. Do you know if it was some sort of? Because when I read that, I'm thinking like the the tragedy contests at the, the, the festival to Dionysius, this, this bit about gathering no sprays from the roses of the muses. I I just wonder if she's saying, and and this does tie it into our theme today. If you're, because you didn't produce any, anything worth producing, you didn't produce any art, you didn't win any acclaim. When you die, 
you're you're just going to be completely forgotten floating around Hades. That was the way that we took it previously. This was one that we had discussed on whatever other episode I was. I think it's actually the one before this one. It is, yeah. That, and 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 that was and that was the way that we all that we that all three of us read it. So there, I mean, there too, you could you could say, well, she has. Um, she has this experience whereby she connects through through something this worldly with something um, eternal, something ultimate, which connects you to so many later literary traditions, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the major English sonnet traditions, um, the Carpe Diem poets. Uh, that's all Ode on a Grecian Urn. It's all there. Which I think we probably read some of that about six years from now. We could go read it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to some of the poems that are really explicitly about art. Uh, Victoria, could you read Voight 118 for us? Come, divine liar, speak to me and become a voice. And we were talking about this. <laughs> that's that's the whole fragment. We were talking about this earlier because the Puchigian is so different from the Freeman, and the Freeman is so bare. I think compared to the Puchigian. Puchigian writes, "God crafted product of the tortoise shell. Come to me, liar. Be voluble." And I gotta say, voluble is not a word I use, so I didn't really understand what that means. Until uh, Victoria read me the Freeman, uh, and the have a voice makes a lot more sense. And it's interesting, too, because uh, the Freeman version sort of takes the physicality mm-hmm. out of it. You, you lose the animal, uh, I can't think of the word, animal contribution. There it is. You lose the animal contribution to the instrument, and you just get um, the lyre itself having a human voice. Yeah, I was going to say something similar along along the lines that we were just discussing. You know, physicality or whatnot in the Freeman translation takes takes that away. So rather than, you know, we. In the Freeman translation, with myself reading it, it's like, okay, I can picture a liar. With um, your translation, you know, the, the, the tortoise shelled, whatever, I forget the way that it was described, but I have, I don't know, a better picture in my mind of what it might look like or a better connection with, with the source where something mundane is becoming, is becoming something perhaps supernatural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You have this kind of transformation of the tortoise, the you know, homely, unexciting tortoise into this instrument of beauty and creation and divinity, right? Right. God-crafted product. Something that becomes more than the sum of its parts. And the other thing I notice about the Puchigian translation is it, it contains the three elements, right? You have... God, animal, and man are all involved in the production of this song that presumably she's about to sing to us. What kind of a voice would she be? Would she be? Would she mean? Do you think in this poem? I I wasn't sure, you know how how to read it necessarily, but that's not the right phrase, the right word I want to use. But 
which he consider the the voice to be human or divine? I don't know what she would have um, considered, but it seems to me that it would be both human and divine and animal, right? Because the tortoise is okay. in some way singing as well. That it's this this kind of triple voice that comes out of this thing, just because so many different entities are involved with the creation of the song. I found it interesting as an invocation. Um, and maybe I just thought that because of things mm. you said on the episode I was just on, but... Um, you know, typ- typically invocations are more, um, more directly divine and more associated with forms like the epic and not with the lyric, which, you know, has lyre in it, which is much more individual and personal. And I think, I think that is a contrast you get throughout Sappho's poetry. There's a, there's Absolutely. a, a really self-conscious moving of the goalposts from war and epic to home and lyric. I agree. It's one of the deep pleasures of reading Sappho. I have a note that I wrote myself, and I'm not sure what I meant by it, so those are always <laughs> wonderful. I, 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 I just wrote down soul music, and I'm not sure if I mean the actual movement of soul or if I mean Terry Pratchett's soul music which I think it could actually work for either one of them. Well, tell us about Terry Pratchett's soul music, because I can't talk so, about that at all. So the whole, and you know, it's also, I guess, somewhat fitting that it comes up today as we're recording this. Um, Little Richard died this morning or, or last night. That news broke today. But soul music is essentially about the creation of rock and roll in an alternate, in an alternate universe. So you have you have a divine instrument or an instrument that is div- that acts as a divine instrument in the hands of the right person, and it starts a whole cultural phenomenon. Well, that sounds relevant. So again, I, I didn't I did not expound on my own notes, and perhaps I should have. Anything to add to that, Victoria? Um, I kept writing musical artists in my marginalia um, throughout my reading of Sappho, and I think that that means something. Um, this association of um, lyric poetry with music and of music with mood, too. Like, I, I think there's just, there's a lot of emotional mood to be found um, with these poems in a way that makes sense to us music with them well let's look at another um, poem about music and another other kind of mood music poem uh, that's uh, Voight 22 could you, re- could you read Voight 22 for us Jay I can so this is Voight 22 a task face if not winter painless I bid you to sing of Gongola, Abanthus, taking up your lyre, while again desire flies around you, beautiful. For her dress excited you when you saw it, and I myself rejoice. For the holy Cyprian herself once blamed me, because I prayed. This word, I wish. There's some, uh, there's some lacuna there, as I'm sure our listeners can figure out. What does this add, what does this poem add to her? 
kind of aesthetics. Desire moves like a dress, uh, which is a metaphor I really love. I, I like the idea of um, sort of desire flying around the body like someone spinning around in a dress. I think that's um, a really expressive metaphor mm-hmm. about both desire and clothes. Like, I think there's a kind of freedom of movement on both ends there that is cool. Desire moves like a dress sure sounds like a Melissa Etheridge lyric, doesn't it? Sure. I uh, not not one of the artists I had written down, but I that works here. I can I can do that. Victoria, knowing what I know about you, I suspect you really like this poem because it's about the ways that the performer's emotion kind of gets carried through her audience. Right? So, uh, Abanthus is singing because she has to, right? Her, her need to sing flutters around her, it says. But then she says, um, then Sappho says that she too is in ecstasy. And she's in ecstasy um, not because of Abanthus's desire exactly, but because she sings her desire and thus makes it communicable to everyone mm-hmm. else in the room. And that, I mean, I have heard you talk many times about why you enjoy going to concerts. And that's it, right? The, the kind of desire that flies around the room and infects people, to use a Absolutely. unfortunate metaphor in the COVID-19 Absolutely. Um, this, is, this is why I like going to concerts exactly, because you can be in a place with people where you're all feeling some approximation of the same emotion or you're all letting a similar lyric hit you the same way um, or a different way. I mean, sometimes the same lyric, you know, is, is a different memory uh, to different people. And, and that's really beautiful too. Um, yes. This was my favorite poem that we read for this episode. It was one of my favorites as well. And I can't necessarily relate to the to the concert experience as it's not been something that I that I necessarily enjoy with all the crowds and whatnot. But it's in my notes, I wrote down um, museums and museums and art Um, right before, you know, we went into isolation and all my wife and I were visited our state, our state art museum. And I had a very similar experience to that with with the um, paintings and the. Oh, uh, one of the particular statues was, I forget what the title was, but it was based on St. Sebastian. Oh, sure. Well, it was, you know, well, you know, St. Sebastian pierced by many arrows, whatever this sculpture was, it was a uh, aviator pierced by airplanes. Oh, interesting. And I knew what it was. And I knew what it was as soon as I went in I, and I looked at my phone and I said, oh, that's an interesting take on Sebastian. And she just kind of looked at me like, how do you know these things? And it's like, yeah, anyway, um, I also wrote down this is this is the nuts and bolts of art or of of true art because you can tell when someone's tried to phone it in and when someone's actually passionate about what they tried to do. So yeah, absolutely. So this is the you know this is the the driving force behind behind whatever the artist is doing and maybe the result isn't going to be for everyone you know is everyone going to like the song that's coming maybe maybe not but you can at least appreciate the effort that was put into it if that makes sense 
I feel like Nathan Gilmore is projecting his spirit into me and demanding that I criticize the view of art we're all suggesting here as just a product of romantic sentimentality. This, this notion that the job of the artist is to communicate his strong emotions or her strong emotions uh, to, to the audience. I don't feel that way, but I just know that Nathan is listening to this at home and shouting at his uh, at his speaker. Well, just in case he is, I do have one more thing to say. Um, and that is, I, I think the last couple of fragmentary lines here do undercut that reading. Yeah. Um, that that praying and wishing and desiring um, if you take them too far or if they are directed wrong can, can be uh, a cause for uh, blame and, and negativity. I, I was very, and I was going to bring that up. The, the turn at the end of the poem suggests there's an ecstasy, not just in being carried away by desire, but an ecstasy in being corrected. What do you think? Well, first of all, I was wondering who the Holy Cyprian was. Would that be Aphrodite? Yeah, I think she is a uh, a particular manifestation of Aphrodite. We talked about that um, in the first episode. Okay, the way the way that I read it, going, I actually connected it to the first, to not to the first lines, but to the preceding lines thing for her dress excited you when you saw it and i myself rejoice it's almost to me i read it as if she were saying you know how far i can go you know i there was that time i got carried away and aphrodite herself had to chastise me mm-hmm. that's the way that i read it saying don't go too far exactly i mean that's a good rule for art too especially if you're coming at it from that kind of romantic or post-romantic uh, orientation. I, I forget who said this, and I, I've quoted it many times on many podcasts, but someone said, um, not all heartfelt art is bad, but nearly all bad art is heartfelt. So I, I, I think in, in the, the kind of post-romantic moment, um, there is a there's a tendency to say, well, if it's sincere, if it's heartfelt, if it's built on real desire, it must be good. And I, you know, I think we've all written enough lousy teenage poetry to know how untrue that is. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. <laughs> In some cases, poetry in your twenties and thirties. Also burned enough of said poetry. <laughs> yeah. I, I should say, by the way, I meant that uh, to refer to myself. I, I realized it could, could have sounded like some sort of well, passive-aggressive attack on my wife, uh, which, uh, no, I was not doing that. And I mean that about myself as well. This is why I don't show you any of my poetry. I, it's true. I, I don't know that I've ever seen one of your poems. No, I don't show him my poetry because it is a way that I get out my unfettered emotions and I realize, you know, that unfettered is often bad. Right. So so the the kind of desire that's moving Abanthus and is also going to move Sappho or whoever is speaking in, in this poem is is a very particular kind of desire that is bounded by particular rules of composition and perhaps even ethical rules. And I I find that very interesting. 
This is another one where I just wish we had the rest of the poem. I wish that at the end of this, that we could we could see what exactly she's making of Aphrodite uh, correcting her. But oh well, right? We'll probably never know. Yeah, probably. I, I'm really interested in just thinking about what being corrected by Aphrodite, given what we know yeah. about rituals that in uh, that were involved in the worship of Aphrodite, what those rituals were. Like, how does Aphrodite correct you? What does that mean? Well, Aphrodite in Sappho well. is much more friendly than she is in some of the other <laughs> ancient Greek sources. Like, you know, she's she's it, there's one poem that we read in another episode where um, where she's basically at Sappho's beck and call, and she she makes people fall in love with her, and like she's she's very domesticated um, here as opposed to especially in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And wasn't it Aphrodite who supposedly turned the Gorgons into monsters? I don't know. You know, Medusa and all that. I think it was. Probably. She did a lot of nasty things. So, yes, Aphrodite blamed me, but at least I didn't turn into a monster. <laughs> That's true. There's correction and then there's correction, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to end with a couple of poems that I, I can't help but see as related, and maybe that's because Puchigian puts them right next to each other on the same page. Um, the first is Voight 32, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that one. By giving me creations of their own, my girls have handed me renown. And then, Victoria, would you go ahead and read Voight 160? Can we... Yours is way different than ours. 32. Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. All we have is who gave me honor by the gift of their works. Well, it's not that different, right? I, it there, depends on how no, you read it. There's no noun doing the giving. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I, that's true. I think that makes it pretty different. I wouldn't say that's wildly different, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously the same poem. Right. I mean, I hadn't read the other one, so I, I was confused. My notes have questions about, you know, is, is this about the creation of the gods, or is this about the gift of the people giving devotion? Um, which I, I don't think is a question that's present in, in the other version. Right, and Puchigian doesn't say anything about him adding the My Girls Well, that's that's interesting because if it's not my girls, I'm not sure that 160 is all that closely related to it. So let's let's park here on 32 for a minute. I know when I read it, I I assumed that she was speaking of the muses. Okay. But then again, I was colored by the the previous episode I was on, and we we talked a lot about the muses in, in that section. So that's what that the way that I read it was it was a almost like a poem of thanks for for the gifts that she had been given. Sappho is Sappho is famous. She's celebrated not because she's so great, but because it comes as a gift, and that that would also connect it back to the epic poem, right? 
it's another <laughs> it's a not an invocation of the muse exactly but a something that relies on a prior invocation of the muse who did you read the unnamed giver as victoria Um, well, like I said, I I thought that it was either um, creation of the gods being the gift, like to to people, or that it was um, people offering devotion back to the deity. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of works, I think, with Jay's muse reading, but I I couldn't figure out what direction things were going in. That's such an interesting shift from my girls to having nobody at all. Because I I think I'm with you. I think if I read it and it didn't have a name attached, I would assume it was the muses, right? Well, taken the other way, if we are talking about... If we are talking about the... um. You know who would the who would the girls be? Sappho ran a school I, for okay. for young women. So there's a there's a number of poems where she refers to my girls, and she seems to be referring to the young women under her charge. Okay. So I mean, I read it with Puchigian's translation. I read it as this is a teacher saying, when my students perform well. I get honor as well as them, which, you know, all three of us have taught. We've all, I'm sure, seen our students give presentations at conferences and elsewhere and felt that in some ways that was your victory as well as their victory. And so the the, the beauty of these young women's compositions somehow gets attributed to Sappho as well as to them. I thought that was lovely. But that's a very different poem than the one that doesn't have my girls in it and refers to the gods or the muses or really anything else. My girls is a very, very specific uh, way to read the poem. That's so interesting. It really is. I, I want to know so much more about where that decision came from. Yeah. It's too bad. None of us read Greek, huh? Yeah, my Greek is 20 years in the past and is very limited. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I know Kalamata. I thought that would get a bigger <laughs> laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I had to. I had, I don't eat a whole lot of olives. <laughs> All right, well, let's look at the other one, which I, we'll see how closely yours matches mine. Victoria, will you read Voight 160? And now for my companions, I will sing these songs beautifully. Oh my gosh, it's so different. Puchegian says, and in this next charming ditty, I, in honor of my girls, shall sing out prettily. Yours is so much more that, like casual and personal. Yeah, well you can and see it, how I thought changes. those two went together, right? Right. Sure. And also it changes the... It, it, it changes the whole poem. You know, there, there's a there's a well there's a large difference between someone who's your companion and and you know as yours says girls yeah 
you know, yes, a companion is close, but girls are much closer, mm-hmm. which I think into the abnormality of the translation. And, and there's an age difference. So, I mean, companion, yes, intimacy, but companion also to me signifies a kind of equality of experience that um, something like girls and the inclusion of a, a word like ditty um, does not. And even in the choice between a song and a ditty, you know, the two are not are not the same. In in the translation that I have, I would almost think it's like, you know, for my companions, I'm going to put on perhaps my my best work or something like that. You know, a uh, a professional chef or someone like that putting on a a dinner party for his best friends or something like that. Whereas, you know. Um, the the ditty, you know, now I have in my mind of like the little fun songs that my mom mm-hmm. sang that have, you know, you would not see them performed at Carnegie Hall or anything like that. It, this feels like she's almost standing in front of an open mic night or something. Or like she's doing karaoke. This one goes out to my girls. <laughs> in honor of my girls, though, is, is what I found so interesting. That it, when I when I read the other one, as she's getting honor from her student success here, her successes uh, redound to her students. So it, it goes in both directions. But obviously, we have <laughs> we have no reason to think that that translation is more accurate than this other one. How yeah, funny! I, I really like I really like the reciprocity of the relationship in in your version. Um, I, I definitely think you were right to to read it that way in that edition, mm-hmm. but I I don't think it's present here in in our edition. So funny. No, we we've got a cold formality almost. I definitely like mine more than yours, but I don't know that that makes mine more accurate to what Sappho was writing or attempting to write or whatever. And, of course, the translators don't really know that either because it's so stripped of context. Go ahead, Victoria. I'm sorry. I I was just going to say I think it's so funny, and I I agree with that reading, Jay, but I I think it's so funny to call Freeman formal in any way because of how creative and compelling and effusive his narrative that comes before the poems is. He's, I mean, he's imagining this, entire world that he kind of admits he has some historical backing for, but that he's, you know, going back and forth a couple hundred years yeah. and maybe he's it's carrying a part a lot of, of Greece. Yeah, he, he is. And, and I, you know, I give it some side eye in terms of like, as a literary scholar, I'm not sure I agree with your historical apparatus, but um, his, his writing is, uh, is very compelling stylistically um, and very personable and personal. So it, it is very strange, um, though I do agree with you, to to ascribe um, formality to some of the editing in the poems. Huh. Now I want to read 20 more translations of Sappho. And unfortunately, that's the only way to read more Sappho, right? Because we have so little from her. And it, it just, it's so heartbreaking because she's so good. It really, really is. Um, I know I made this comment 
on the previous episode, but this was my first time reading Sappho, and my immediate reaction was, if this is what we have with her fragments, if we had the whole thing, it would set the world on fire. Yeah, I, I just, you know, she was considered Homer's equal in in the ancient world, so it's not like it's not like people didn't know, but we we just don't have we don't we don't have the bulk of what she wrote, the overwhelming bulk of what she wrote. Since this is the last episode in the series, I think we, we get the responsibility and or uh, privilege of kind of wrapping it up with our, our final thoughts on Sappho. Um, what's, we all agree she's great. What's so great about her? Uh, so I'm about to give a really Victoria answer. I can't wait. <laughs> um, the, the way she centers female physicality and desire I think to me I said this on the other episode I was on too but since I do get to have the last word I'll say it again um to me reads is incredibly progressive even in 2020 and is just mind-blowing to me to think that um this was happening in ancient Greece and that as Jay said there's so much more of it that we don't have like I just it's so sad to think of what um, what kind of beautiful, liberating, desire-filled, female-centered art we do not have. How about you, Jack? Well, I, first of all, consider myself very ill-prepared to even answer the question. I don't know if that I can give a, a proper answer to it, but to me, she she came across as an individual who knew, who knew herself, and I don't want to say and knew her place, but she knew herself and she knew where she fit in the world that she inhabited and made the most of it. Yeah. And what more could mm-hmm. any of us ask for? The self-assuredness of these poems is really remarkable. She's self-assured without coming off, at least to me, as arrogant. She she must have been a force of nature in in real life. Can you imagine being one of her girls? Like being sent to this, I always picture it as a boarding school. I think it's kind of like a finishing school. But being sent there and meeting this remarkable woman. And you, you wonder if they knew at the time that she would go down in history as one of the greatest poets ever, you know? Probably not. Probably they were just like, eh, she gives too much homework. <laughs> right? Because human beings have always been human beings. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I love about her, and you got, you touched on this a bit, Victoria, is just the, the physicality of this and the, the sensual pleasure that she manages to convey in the poems. And, and you get a little bit of that in Homer, especially in the Odyssey, when... Um, when Telemachus is is going from castle to castle, drinking wine and eating joints of meat, you know, you, you get a little bit of physical pleasure there, and there's some other places as well, but it is nothing compared to Sappho. I was going to say the poems are sexy, and some of them are sexy, but it's really not sex. It's it's just about the, the pleasures of a summer afternoon under an apple tree. The word I kept coming back to, and I I led the episode on love poems, so we we did talk about sex um, and desire quite a bit, and I I told a very 
silly story about how um, I, I asked a professor of mine um, who introduced me to these poems. I was in her office one day and I said, like, I just, you know, this is supposed to be so sexy and I don't really think it's sexy and I don't get it. Um, and she very kindly said, you know, I, I think you should maybe give this a few years, um, <laughs> which, which is, is very, is very valuable, um, as a mentor to find someone who will kindly correct you and tell you when you don't have enough life experience. But the word I kept coming back to now, um, 10, 11 years later is intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think you were hitting on that when you were talking about self-knowledge and, and self-assurance. Um, I think intimacy with, with self and with other is something that makes these really poems for, for adults, poems for um, a kind of more mature view of, of the self and the world. You asked if, if they thought that perhaps her, her girls thought Sappho would, would be remembered or perhaps what Sappho herself thought of her. And obviously we can't know, but I, I can't find the, the Voight number, but you know, to answer Sappho with Sappho, the one line that keeps coming back to me after now reading these three or four times was the one line that said, I did not think to touch the sky. Mm. That's the one that I, that keeps coming back to me. It's like, you know, and to me it speaks maybe not, maybe to her, maybe she gained a reputation that she hadn't thought, but, you know, it speaks to to all of us, you know, where we often find ourselves in situations that we could never have imagined, you know, a year, two years previously. I don't know. I think I'm rambling now. No, I like that. Ramble away. Well, it's that it's that idea that we find ourselves in in circumstances, you know, beyond our control. Um, you know, I and I'm again I'm reading a lot into it, but it brought to mind um, Icarus and Daedalus, and and that particular myth, and Sappho perhaps, you know, talking about rising to great heights or finding herself, and and I know I'm carrying a lot of water here, but perhaps um, finding herself out of her element, maybe not knowing where to go or what to do or what the right course of action was. And that that's probably one of the fragments I wish that we had more of the poem for, Mm -hmm. to to know what exactly she meant by that. But that's the one line that's been coming back to me over the last couple months reading through her poetry. Well, anything else to say, anybody? Uh, No, this was fun. I'm glad I spent more time with these poems. Thank you guys so so much for coming Mm -hmm. on and talking about Sappho and art and beauty with me. This is the end of the series three of the court curriculum, the Sappho series. Uh, There are a number of Sappho poems that we never talked about that weren't even on the list to talk about. So uh, obviously we encourage our listeners to go read everything by Sappho you can get your hands on. Uh, And in a few weeks, maybe a few months, whenever, we'll be back with uh, 10 or 11 episodes on Homer's Odyssey. So until then, you can listen to the other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network over at ChristianHumanist.org. We are a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thank you for listening.